Hello and welcome to the Money Talk podcast. I'm Ed Monk. Today on the show, it's a quarterly investment outlook special where we put your questions to the Outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Interest rates, the war in Ukraine and the assets that have a chance of beating inflation all featured high in the thoughts of Fidelity investors this time round. And that's our focus today. If you enjoy the show, please rate us, share us or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Each quarter, Fidelity publishes its investment outlook, a snapshot of the market's landscape that rounds up the issues on the minds of investors. An invaluable part of that is the questions that we invite you to submit to us, and in particular to the outlook's author, Tom Stevenson. Tom and I have answered some of those questions in a special video that accompanies the outlook. You can find that as well as the outlook itself at the markets and insights section of our website at fidelity.co.uk. The podcast this week takes on even more of those questions and Tom is here with me to do that. Tom, welcome along. Um, Before we get into those investor questions, can we have a word on uh, the past few months in markets since the last outlook? I look back at the questions that we were getting last time round back in January and uh, well, not a single one back then was about Ukraine or or the war or the potential war there and I guess that's the biggest issue facing markets right now which gives an indication of how quickly things can change what has changed would you say in the last three months uh, besides those obvious things but also what stayed the same in markets yeah that's a that's a good question because uh, you know clearly the three months have been a, a, a very good example of how things can come out of left field as they say uh, and surprise us and and the war in uh, in Ukraine was was obviously uh, one of those. Uh, I mean, actually, uh, one of the uh, financial and economic impacts that that, that war has had, um, leaving aside, you know, the, the the terrible nature of the war itself, the economic and financial impacts that it's had has been to build on an existing inflation uh, problem. Uh, now, we knew about inflation at the beginning of that three month period. It's obviously deteriorated very significantly, and in fact. Uh, this week uh, we're recording on on Tuesday, but but later today we've got some inflation figures out of the US, and tomorrow we've got some inflation figures in the UK. They're both going to be pretty 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 mm. worrying. Um, inflation is running very hot. The other thing I think which we knew about, but which has also got worse, uh, is the is the COVID situation. I mean, you know, we may be learning to live with it here. Yeah. Um, or maybe not, but um, uh, it, it's certainly different in different parts of the world. And the situation in China at the moment looks very difficult indeed. Shanghai has been uh, uh, shut down effectively. Uh, that's causing great difficulties for the people that live there, obviously. But it's also got some knock-on effects uh, in terms of supply chain uh, issues and again um, adding to that inflationary issue so and I guess the the other thing which is which has been there at the start and has continued has been the response to that inflation question which is the which is the rise in mm-hmm. interest rates so we knew that the Federal Reserve was was poised to start raising interest rates it's already happened in in the UK um, but what's really become abundantly clear uh, in recent weeks is that the Fed is going to go hard and fast uh, in order to try and get on top of inflation. So interest rates are going to rise faster and possibly stay higher, possibly stay higher uh, than we expected. Okay, well, uh, we we did have questions on um, many of those topics, Tom. So let's get into those questions now. The first one is this, Tom, 
The speculation surrounding a stock market crash continues to be persistent and one that doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. Suffice to say that it's holding me back from fully investing this year's allowance into my stocks and shares ISA, despite inflationary pressures eating into my savings. What's your view on this? So what is the view on getting fully invested versus holding something back? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good question. I mean, you know, clearly, uh, stock markets have risen a lot in the last uh, couple of years and there are more headwinds now the things that we've just been talking about in particular the interest rate rises uh, than was the case uh, so I can see why someone would be would be nervous about a, a correction I wouldn't go as far as to be worried about a stock market crash it doesn't feel to me like the circumstances are in place why why that should happen uh, and I'll explain why. I think that um, uh, valuations in stock markets have actually been coming back for a, about a year now. So shares are cheaper than they were. I think earning, corp, corporate earnings are uh, continuing to rise. We're looking at maybe 10% growth in earnings this year and, and next year. Um, and there's a kind of weight of money argument as well. A lot of money since the financial crisis went into bonds and money market funds. It's not getting a good return in those markets now. And it feels to me, and the evidence is, that some of that money is coming back into the stock market. So I, I think for a number of reasons, you know, I think you can um, uh, take a, a more optimistic view than the questioner on the outlook for, for shares. But in answer to your question, Ed, about you know holding some back and putting all the going going full in, uh, I think you know we we always say that that it makes sense to drip your money into the market throughout the year rather than putting all in in one go and 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 running the risk that you will do that just ahead of a correction in the market. And I think that that uh, you know that recommendation absolutely holds true. It's it, there's no need to put your money in all at once. Put it in steadily through the year. Yeah, and and uh, just to echo something you said there, yeah, the the, the language around a, a stock market crashes. Other questions which we'll get to, which are, are quite sort of extreme in their in their sort of uh, fear almost around what's happening in markets. The, the the stock market can often be quite disconnected to the news. It will reflect big negative shocks, but at the same time, it has been quite resilient in this in this period. And when you really look at the losses, such as that they have been, um, it is possible to kind of get get too cautious and too spooked and 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 for that to be in excess of what's actually going on yeah that's true i I mean really i mean you know you could argue that the stock market uh has has held up rather better than you might have expected given all, all all the headwinds i mean in the context of uh the sharp rises in prices that we've seen over the last uh two years it's not unexpected that we should have had a bit of a slowdown. And actually, you know, overall, over the last three months, the market is probably only down, you know, a few percentage points. It's, um, I think it's been holding up really well. It's really been quite resilient, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on for now, Tom. The next question is this. With inflation now looking to stick around longer, what is the outlook for growth funds such as Bailey Gifford, for example? And what percentage of a portfolio should be allocated to growth funds. Now, um, they've mentioned Bailey Gifford there. That's an investment house. It has several funds and investment trusts. They've got a reputation and a, and a great track record, haven't they, Tom, in, uh, as the questioner suggests, in growth funds and growth stocks. Uh, explain what that is for us, Tom, and, and the outlook uh, that the question is asked about. Yes. So uh, I'm guessing that that they're referring possibly to, to the... the um, 
the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, which is run by Bailey Gifford. But you're right that even aside from that, Bailey Gifford runs a number of funds which have a bias towards um, uh, growth uh, growth stocks. And what that means is that they they are they 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 tend to invest in the kinds of stocks which are growing their earnings at a at a fast rate and possibly are quite highly um, rated as a consequence of that high growth. Um, it's, it's the reverse. It's the opposite, if you like, of what's called value investing, where you look for shares which are relatively cheap, but maybe are not growing uh, at, the same, at the same sort of rate, but have some sort of potential for uh, a bounce back, a, a recovery. So Bailey Gifford has a, has a focus on on growth now, in an inflationary environment in which interest rates are, are rising, that can make it more difficult um, for highly valued um, stocks like that to continue growing and to continue to be highly valued. So, what we've seen, as it's become clear that interest rates are going up, is that those growthier shares have been hit harder than those value shares, uh, the, 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 the less uh, highly rated uh, shares. And I think that that process may well continue. We may continue to see a bit of a shift away from growth towards value. But it's always at the margin, these things. I think that, you know, we talk a lot about the merits of diversification. And um, I think having a bit of both, having some growth and some value in a portfolio uh, makes, makes a lot of sense. Yes, um, it, it's interesting. I, I mentioned at the top of this that we, uh, you and I had a conversation on video, Tom, uh, answering questions. We spoke in that conversation about some tech uh, companies and, and the prospects for tech, and they would certainly be included in, in these growth uh, stocks that we're, we're, we're talking about here. And, and one thing that occurs to me about this, I mean, obviously, that, that calculus that you talk about there about inflation and higher interest rates, removing the attraction somewhat of the um, of these growth companies because a lot of their value is tied up with their future earnings and inflation erodes that those future earnings. But in, in the case of some of those technology companies, we haven't seen them in all sorts of different economic environments. We haven't seen them in a high inflation environment because we haven't had one for so long. And quite frankly, they weren't around the last time we did have them. They have shown themselves to be defensive when they need to be defensive. They've shown themselves to be able to grow in all sorts of conditions and it may be it may be that actually this is a great opportunity to buy some of those companies at, at slightly lower valuations than they have been if you're going to hold them for a very very long time um, none of that's certain of course but it's it's not quite as straightforward as saying interest rates high inflation's high that means a growth company can't can't do well and can't deliver for an investor no, you raise a, a, a very good point there, Ed. I think, you know, one of the key factors in when you're investing in a more inflationary environment is to look at the pricing power of the companies that you're investing in. Can they pass on higher costs to their customers? Do they have a, do they have a, a product or a service which is so highly valued by uh, its customers that they will pay more for it uh, in future, and I think when you look at some of the products and services that are uh, offered by these technology uh, companies, they are things that we simply do not wish to do without. Whether it's our mobile phones or our streaming services or, or whatever, mm. I think they do have a lot of pricing power. You know, I know that I would be prepared to pay ten percent more if I had to, for, and that puts those companies in a very strong position. 
Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, let's move on for now, Tom. Uh, the next question is this. Hi, Tom. You regularly talk about well-diversified portfolios. You certainly do, Tom. I can testify. I've just that. done it. Yeah. I have ISAs. You did. <laughs> yes, I have ISAs in 15 funds, including the Select 50 Balance Fund. Should diversification be across countries, types, companies, or all three? And what should be the spread by value? Now, Tom, I, I've, yeah, I'll, I'll let you get into that, but it's an interesting question because we can talk about the risks of, of, of under and over diversifying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are there are lots of different ways of, of diversifying. I mean, one of the obvious ways is by investing in different markets, different different countries, uh, by investing in, you know, a, a broad enough spread of companies so that you eliminate to the extent that's possible um, company-specific uh, risk. We've talked about different styles. We talked about growth and value investing. Obviously, diversifying across those different styles uh, is important. Different sectors, um, different investment companies. I mean, you know, we talked about Bailey Gifford there. You know, they have a particular style. Uh, You might not want to put all your eggs in that basket. So invest with more than one uh, manager. So, yeah, there is clearly merit in in diversification. You make it less likely that... uh, you're going to come a cropper because things go wrong in one particular area of the market. So that's a that's a good thing. You mentioned over diversification uh, there, and again, I think that's in, that's an important point to make because the more that you diversify, the more that your returns will simply gravitate towards the market average. And one of the things that you're trying to do as an investor is to is to beat the market, is to do better than the market. And the only way that you can really do that is by being more focused on the areas that you think are going to do well. So it is a balance. You know, you don't want to you don't want to spread your eggs in too many baskets. You don't want to be too diversified, but you do need to have enough diversification to create a smooth ride and, and a safe ride. Yeah, indeed. I, I thought it was an interesting question, Tom. I mean, you mentioned there that the aim of investing is to is to is to beat the average. Well, if that is indeed your aim, you know, if you if you if you uh, want to take active de- well, that's a fair point. You know, active decisions, either your active mm. decisions or the active decisions of a fund manager. A lot of people will make do with just the, what the market does. In fact, um, they'll point to all sorts of evidence that says that, that that is the way to go in the long term. Yeah. So yeah, as you mentioned there, there's this risk here of. Um, simply replicating what the index is doing, thinking you're diversified because you have lots of different funds that you've chosen, but actually taken in aggregate and together, they just simply behave like the old, the, like the, the the overall market would. Mm. I noticed this this person has said fifteen funds. I don't know if that's too many. It may be. It may not. It sort of depends on the funds, doesn't it? But um, it sounds like a lot. Particularly, they've got the uh, the Select Fifty Balance Fund, which 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 we promote and which is a of itself a very very well diversified fund with a maybe a bit of a bias towards sort of wealth preservation but um it may be and i it, i do appreciate this it can be quite difficult for ordinary investors to do but if you can get an idea of what's going on within those investments are they in fact underneath it all investing in similar things would you be better off just tracking the market if that's effectively what you're doing? Because you'll probably be able to get a similar return, but for a cheaper price, which means a better return overall. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth thinking about. The fact that they've highlighted it perhaps indicates that um, they're slightly unsure. Uh, it can make sense to, to, to have a bit of a sort of rationalization, a bit of pruning every now and again to, to cut back and really focus on the decisions you want to be taking, right? Rather than just things that have sat there for a while and that are just sort of 
diluting everything a bit. Yeah, and I think the point you make there about um, looking underneath the bonnet and seeing what's actually in your funds is important because, uh, you know, very often you look at the top 10 holdings in in you know funds invested in the same market say uk funds or or us funds or whatever you know there'll be a lot of overlap they will they will hold many similar similar stocks so you may have less diversification than on the face of it you think you've got Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay okay well so let's move on for now um yeah, this question was in all caps, so I think that indicates the, the sort of level of alarm behind it. <laughs> it is this, Tom. Hi, I am getting really worried about my investment. I have lost £8,000 in five months. This is my only savings at age 75. I can't afford to lose much more. I am uncertain of what to do. Please advise. Now, let's add in here that nothing that we say here is actually financial advice. Everything uh, is, is merely guidance. And, and if you really are concerned about your own circumstances, you should seek out advice. But we can say something, can't we, Tom, about, about, about this level of sort of distress that apparently this, this person is, is feeling at the current losses. What do you uh, read between the lines from a question like this? Well, I mean, I look at I look at the the words which the questioner uses, and I think that the the the, the hints are there. I can't afford to lose much more. Um, I think that's the key question. I, I think that when you are invested in the stock market, it's important to accept that uh, that comes with a certain degree of uh, potential volatility. That you have to accept that in the short term, uh, it's possible that the value of your holdings will go down. And over time, uh, it's likely that they will recover. But you have to accept that level of volatility if you're going to invest in the stock market. And that's one of the reasons why we say that if it's really important to you that you have uh, uh, access to a certain amount of value from your from your savings within uh, a short period of time, say within the next three to five years, then maybe you shouldn't be invested in the stock market because you have to leave long enough for the market to recover from the inevitable um, ups and downs, uh, more to the point. Uh, so I think that, I think that the, the questioner's age is important here as well. Uh, at 75, maybe, uh, you know, he, he or she is not investing uh, on such a long time scale. Um, so at the very least, I would look at the allocation of assets and, and see whether it's, it's spread um, uh, wide enough to, to um, ameliorate some of those if effects. Yeah, indeed. A few things sort of jumped out at me reading this question. I mean, something is awry, probably, we can say, in, in, in either the, the risk that this person is taking or how much of their sort of money is now dependent on financial markets. All those things I think you've, you've sort of touched on there are true, Tom. You know, if, if at age 75, obviously, an investment pot is going to be important to their, to their income and their standard of living, it should be invested in a way where the ups and downs, because they will come along, are at levels that, that you can sort of handle and that, that aren't going to make you panic. Um, you, there's other things around other sort of financial planning principles that should be in place. Have a pot of money, take your income from cash, replenish with investments. You kind of can smooth things out a little bit. And if it's not right, and if it's simply, um, you know, moving about more than you can stand, then you probably should change that, even if it means selling some assets at a loss. Um, that that It's important to get that right in the first place. The other point I would make is that 
they, they talk about eight being, you know, age 75. It suggests that this money has been invested for a while. Maybe it hasn't, but it's, it would suggest that way to me. And in which case, you may have lost £8,000 in the last five months. I wonder how much you, you'd gained on paper over the, the year, two years, three years before that. Because if, if your investment mix is anything like the sort of aggregate market sort of return, um, you would have you would have gained a lot more than eight thousand pounds over those those three years preceding that. So you need mm. to get losses and gains in perspective. Um, and, and as we've said at the start of this conversation, what we've seen in terms of losses, the news has been very dramatic. That hasn't really been matched. And you might be you might be looking at um, over the past five months, which I guess takes us from sort of December to now. Sure, there would have been some lurching about within that time, but actually you're probably in ag- aggregate only a few percentage points down. And if that's what's if that's enough to freak you out to this level, yeah, I would agree with you. Maybe it's a time for for a big reassessment of your of your finances. Yeah, just a couple of very quick points there, Ed. I mean, the one thing we don't know is uh, is what percentage eight thousand pounds represents. Sure. I mean, if if this if this is an eighty thousand pound portfolio, then that's clearly a worry. If this is a million pound portfolio, then that's you know that's just within the uh, the bounds of normality, really. That kind that kind. Of movement, but the psychology. Second point I'd make is the psychology of losses and gains is very interesting. You know, we you made that point that probably that uh, this investment may have risen a long way in the last two years, but but uh, the such is the psychology of investment that we kind of think, well, well that's it to be expected. That's what that's that's just normal. Mm. But we hate to lose money. The the, the 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 feeling of loss that we have when when our savings go down is is disproportionately greater for 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 fall than uh, than the opposite feeling is for a gain. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, let's move on for now, Tom. Uh, a quest- next question is a simple one, but it does give us a way in to talk about. Uh, economies more widely and what's going on in the UK economy in terms of uh, people's real life experience of it. The question is this, is now the right time for the Bank of England to continue with its interest rate hikes? So is it? Excellent question. Yeah, excellent question, because really, arguably, um, uh, raising interest rates uh, is going to do very little about the underlying problem, which is the rising cost of um, energy. Uh, that is what's driving uh, inflation at the moment. And actually, uh, if people are uh, short of money because their gas bills have gone up and because it's costing them more to put petrol uh, in in their car, then raising interest rates isn't going to help that problem. It's going to make things worse um, uh, because it's going to raise their other costs, for example, their, their, their mortgage and the cost of any borrowings that they may have. So, you know, there, you, you, you could argue that, that, that actually the Bank of England should just be looking through this short term hike in energy costs and being more concerned about the growth side of the equation. Because as we saw earlier this week, uh, the, the UK economy basically ground to a halt in February, growth of just 0.1 percent. Um, and, you know, a, a strong case could be made that, 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 that you know, there's more of a growth concern than there is an inflation concern, although the, clearly there is an inflation concern. And just to play devil's advocate, Tom, and to put the other side of the the the, the, the argument, would would the would the Bank of England rate setters not argue that what they're really worried about is a sort of inflationary spiral where um, prices get higher, workers 
begin to demand higher wages to meet those prices wage prices can move about wages tend to go in one direction they can go up they tend not to come back down again so that sort of broad-based wage-based inflation that's what will lead to much more the, the kind of inflation that's hard to do anything about i'm sure the bank of england doesn't think it can bring down energy prices uh, it knows it can't but there's all sorts of inflation in the economy that might not be linked to that and it should still uh try to control that if it can yeah i don't disagree with with any of that i mean clearly you know if we get into a wage price uh, spiral then that will be hugely damaging and we've been there before we know what that looks like from the 1970s and it's it's not a great place to be and and getting out of that situation uh, which is what we were able to do uh, because of the measures taken particularly by the Federal Reserve uh, in the early 1980s, is extremely painful. Uh, you know, the, the, the central bank had to trigger a very severe recession in order to bring uh, inflation down to more manageable levels. So the question is, you know, is the price worth paying? And that, and that, is, that is the unanswerable question, really. Yeah, the next few months, I think, uh, in terms of sort of macroeconomic stuff and, and monetary policy, it's going to be really interesting this year, I think. Um, let's move on for now, Tom. Uh, the next question is this. I'm 53 and plan to retire at some point between age 55 and 60. My pension may well exceed the government's limit, but what's the downside of this? Well, uh, yeah, a, a technical question. What would you have to say about that, Tom? Yeah, well, the, the, the downside of it is that you're going to be landed with uh, a tax bill on, on any uh, assets that you hold in your pension uh, over and above the, the limit. So clearly that that's not a, that's not a good place to be. I think this is probably uh, an argument actually for uh, maybe seeking some professional advice. If you're in the fortunate position of maybe bumping up against the lifetime allowance for, for your pension, then I think it would probably be money well spent to get tax advice, uh, tax and investment advice from uh, someone who is an expert in this field. So that would be my suggestion. Yeah, indeed. What, what, the, what the question is talking about here is, uh, is the lifetime allowance on pensions. Um, I'm hastily looking up what that is. It's, it's, it's little more than a million pounds, basically. Um, and, and, and the point is that, that yeah, the, the government has set this level so that um, very wealthy people can't have endless amounts of, of, of tax relief and tax-free gains on their retirement money. If you breach that limit then there are as you say big tax penalties to pay it's something like i think it's a 55 percent tax charge on lump sums taken out of your pension that's in breach of the lifetime allowance there's another charge a 25 percent tax charge on income and that would be on on top of the income tax you would pay from pension income as well so it's really punitive whether you're rubbing up against that limit or not depends on a few things um it sort of depends on whether you've been contributing all this time to your pension, because had you stopped contributing to your pension by, I think, 2016 and made no more contributions after that, after that then it may be that you would enjoy some sort of protection um, uh, for a higher lifetime allowance. But as you say, Tom, you're only ever going to find that stuff out really uh, with, with the help of a, a professional of some kind. So it should be a really good trigger to go and go and talk to, to someone. It sounds like 
this has not yet exceeded the lifetime allowance so it does sound like there's still time to do something about it which is good and let's acknowledge it's a first world problem a high quality problem to have as they would say so uh, you know congratulations to this questioner but um yeah seek out some ad ad advice it might be to your to your benefit um last question tom last question of this this section today uh and it is this and it's a topical one there is a right-wing shift in the western world le pen in france Brexit, Trump, AFD in Germany, etc. Could this impact the financial markets? And if so, how? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, the short the short answer is yes. It's very likely to uh, impact the financial markets, but possibly in ways that we don't um, uh, fully understand. I mean, the the the, the nature of of the right wing shift uh, in politics is that in in many uh, countries, and 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 they're mentioned. You know, many of them are mentioned in in the question there. The, the, the governments have uh, adopted a more populist tone. Uh, and what that means is that in many cases, they are keener on um, spending uh, money to, to remain popular. That's, the, that's what populism effectively means. Um, they're keener on spending money to, to remain uh, in power. And that may potentially have a negative impact on uh, economies uh, further down the track. In the short run, it may have a positive impact uh, on economies and may be good for financial markets. Mm. And that's why I say it's quite difficult to generalise about whether um, you know a right-wing shift is a good or a bad thing uh, from an investment uh, perspective. Uh, but clearly, you know, this is this is a widespread issue. It's not just uh, you know on either side of the Atlantic that we've that we've seen. Uh, this shift. I mean, this is this is happening all around the world. You know, from India to Turkey to uh, to Hungary to Poland. Or it's it's all over the world. So it is part of a trend. I think you know one of the one of the key economic uh, consequences is likely to be a shift more uh, towards self sufficiency uh, within um, countries to a less globalized world than we've been used to. And uh, potentially that has an inflationary impact. So I think more spending and higher inflation are probably the most obvious consequences of that shift. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't have loads to add to that, Tom. I think you've, you've, you've summed it up well. I mean, obviously, the, the most pressing one, the one we'll hear about a lot in the next few weeks is Marine Le Pen in France and whether she can um, unseat um, Emmanuel Macron. Um, and that that would be a, that would be a blow to globalization, wouldn't it? But globalization has taken several blows in the last in the last few years, and I think what you say is true. A lot of governments are are thinking about the future and making themselves. You know, I think they're less willing to rely on a sort of globalized future. They might be more inward looking. Now, that's probably not great for for global trade, and and maybe not for security around around the world. But as you say, you might have all these sort of second order second order effects. It might make um, the situation of many countries more stable if they if they if they seek out more sustainable sources of energy, for example, um, it might mean relying more on renewable energy, and that has a that has a potentially uh, a good impact in all sorts of ways, not not just economically. So, be wary of very linear um, sort of conclusions drawn in in these political scenarios. We've had a lot of them over the last few years. They are something to, to, to worry about, but you know the stock market in particular is a funny thing, and 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 it, there can be paradoxically things that seem at first glance bad for markets can actually lead to quite a positive reaction. It's it's 
it, it, you, you shouldn't bet your house on the on the result of an election. Talk. No, absolutely, and it just reminds me a little bit of that uh, of that uh, uh, um, famous uh, saying about the French Revolution. Where Deng Xiaoping was asked, "Did he think that the French Revolution had been a success?" and he said, "It's too early to tell." Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I'll, I'll bear that in mind, Tom, as I watch uh, the French elections over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> um, we've answered absolutely loads of questions today, and I'm afraid that's all we, we've got time for now. Tom, thanks so much for your answers. I'm going to remind everyone that the investment outlook itself is available to read at the Markets and Insights section at fidelity.co.uk. There's also a series of videos that Tom has recorded that focus on each of the main asset classes and regions. And there's a Q&A video, I mentioned it in this podcast earlier, earlier on, uh, where we answer even more of your questions. So if you want more of those, check it out. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Money Talk podcast. Check fidelity.co.uk for daily written updates and articles on these and other topics from across Fidelity in the UK. And subscribe via iTunes to get the podcast downloaded direct to your devices every week. Please be aware that the value of investments and the income you get from them can go down as well as up, so you may not get back what you invest. This information doesn't constitute investment advice and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. Eligibility to invest in an ISA or a pension and the value of tax savings depends on personal circumstances and all tax rules may change. You will not normally be able to access money held in a pension until the age of 55. Reference to specific securities or funds should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities or funds and is included for the purpose of illustration only. Fidelity Personal Investing does not give personal recommendations. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorised financial advisor.